Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 25, 1 through 13. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Mahon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Naval, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Naval was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Naval, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in, Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful, we are thankful for you and the fact that uh, you can be trusted. Uh, you are the righteous judge who we can trust to make things right. Uh, you are uh, the one who uh, rewards righteousness. You are the one who saves and redeems. Father, this morning, uh, as uh, we hear from your word, I pray that you would convict us of the ways that we don't trust you, that we reach out our hands to try and wrestle the kingdom away from you, that we try to control and to manipulate. And I pray, Father, that you would convict us of these things so that we might repent and that we might turn and that we might proclaim the truth, that you are in control and we don't have to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, many of you um, maybe are already know this, but we actually have a number of, um, of acclaimed artists that are part of, of, our, of our church body. Uh, photographers, painters, uh, musicians, um, but uh, what you may not know is that um, I, uh, myself, am uh, an acclaimed uh, artist. I uh, am a sandwich artist. It's a real thing. Um, my art you can eat, so anyway. Um, I, am, I am a sandwich artist. Um, I, I work uh, in carbohydrates and proteins the way that some work uh, with clay and oils. Um, it is my, my preferred uh, medium. Um, I, I also like to stick to the grilled side of, of the sandwich. Um, uh, you can ask my boys, I make a, a PB&J that is, uh, is phenomenal. Uh, not only is it grilled, but there are slin, thin slices of, of bananas in it. Uh, which takes it over the top. Um, I do a mean grilled cheese, an exquisite uh, 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 BLT, 
Uh, my favorite is a pastrami on, on rye, uh, thin-sliced pastrami. Um, a little bit of, of yellow mustard, um, sometimes Swiss, but sometimes I like to go with a mild white cheddar, and then crisp, uh, thinly sliced kosher dill pickles, all between a New York-style rye bread, and that is lightly buttered and, 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 and put on the broiler to, to give it this beautiful brown color. And, uh, and it is not just beautiful to look at, but it is beautiful to eat. And, it, and this is art. Right, and, and you can talk about photos of painting all you want, but you can eat this. Anyway, uh, the reason why I tell you about my sandwich artistry is that the passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26, is a sandwich. It is, it is a sandwich. It is uh, a, 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 an artfully put together, beautiful sandwich of faith, if that sounds trite. It, it's it's beautiful. Anyway, um, what we find is in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we find a parallel to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We have this uh, mini chiasm that's happening there. And, and what, those, what that happens is when you have two things that parallel each other, it sort of draws your attention to what's in the middle, what's in between, and what's in chapter 25. Chapter 25 is the meat. It's the, it's the protein power pack of the sandwich. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at 24, we're going to skip 25, look at 26, and then when we're done dealing with the bread, the, the, the thing that carries the meat to its destination, then we're going to look at chapter 25, the, the, the center of, of the sandwich. Now, as we walk through these passages this morning, there's, there's two things that I want you to pay attention to. Uh, the first thing to pay attention to is the use of hands in the Scripture. The, the, the author and the editors are, are going to use uh, hands to illustrate something. It is, is a powerful symbol for control or re- the relinquishing of control. So pay attention to hands. The second thing to pay attention to is the voices. Um, who are the people speaking into uh, the, the main characters of the story? And what are those people saying? They're exhorting them to do something. They're putting them to action. They're putting them, they're directing them, and they're trying to get them to, to, to do something. What are these voices saying and telling them to do? Okay? So we're going to pick it up where we left off two weeks ago before the away game. Uh, we finished off chapter 23. And, uh, and if you'll remember, uh, Saul is still pursuing David. Um, Saul knows that David's going to take the throne. He knows that he's going to replace him as king, but he doesn't understand the way that that's supposed to go down. He doesn't understand that it's God that's going to remove him from being king, and that it's God that's going to put David on the throne. Instead, Saul thinks that David is going to take the throne from him. He thinks that David is out to get him. And, and he has this paranoid, paranoid delusion that, that, that David is out to get him, despite the fact that David has, has served him and blessed him and uh, led his army and, and has done so many things for him, out of love for him. Despite everything that David's done to prove this wrong, Saul still labors under this paranoid delusion that David is out to get him. And so uh, his plan is to get David first. And so we closed uh, our time uh, looking at chapter 23 two weeks ago where... Um, Saul is sort of closing in. He and his 3,000 troops are getting close, uh, closing in on, on David and his men. Um, but the Philistines attack uh, Israel, <clears throat> and he has to leave off his pursuit of David to go and fight the Philistines. So we pick it up in chapter 24. Um, Saul is back with his army. David is hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi where there's a lot of caves. And David and a handful of his men are in one of these caves. And it just so happens that Saul is outside of the very cave he's hiding in. 
He's outside of this cave, and, and rather than thinking, hey, there's potential danger in a cave, like maybe you or my, I might think, Saul looks at the cave and says, this is a porta potty, and I have to go. And so he goes into the cave to relieve himself. He takes off his royal robe and he puts it down for obvious reasons, and there David and his men are watching Saul go. And they see that Saul is on a silver platter for him. And here's what David's men say to David. Uh, look at chapter 24, verse 4. Pay attention to what they say, but also pay attention to the hands throughout this chapter. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's men are whispering in his ear and saying, This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the moment we have to seize. God said that he would put your enemy into your hand, and here he is. Do whatever seems good to you, and what seems good, to us at least, is what? Murder. Here he is. And, and think about the, the, the plight of, of David's men here. They're on the run. They don't have any homes. They don't have any provisions. They're probably very, very hungry. Uh, they're, they're constantly going from one place to another. They're outnumbered by Saul's army five to one. As sooner or later, this is going to end, and it's probably going to end badly. And here is this moment that, that God has placed Saul in the mouth of this cave. Saul is, is there because God put him there, and, and, and it's time to act. God wants us to kill him. God's put him here for this very reason. But what does David do? I want us to see this morning that um, in each one of these chapters, David is being put to a test. And, and the test is, is basically this. this. It's, it's God saying to David, uh, will you trust me to make you king? Or will you take matters into your own hands and make yourself king? And you see, this test is the test that Saul failed. It's also the test that Adam in the garden failed. It's the test that Jesus will one day take and not fail. But it's also the test that you and I are constantly taking. And God is constantly putting the question to us, will you wait for the kingdom that I have for you, or will you reach out and try to make your own kingdom? This is a test. And David passes it this time. Uh, look at what it says there in... Um, Verse 6, he says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Saul doesn't even know what's happened. What, is, what does David do? David, uh, instead of, of taking a knife out or a sword out and killing Saul, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Uh, a, a little while before this, when Saul failed the same test, uh, Samuel comes to him and, saying, and says, God's going to remove the kingdom from you. And, and, and Saul falls on his face and reaches out for Samuel and grabs hold of the bottom of his robe and, it, and the corner rips off. And Samuel turns to him and, and prophetically says, that's what's going to happen to your kingdom. That God's going to tear it out of your hands. And so here is, is David and he's, corn the torner, or he's cut the corner uh, cut the corner of the robe off and he has it in his hand and, but, but even this sort of plagues his conscience Saul doesn't even know what's happened he gets up he, he leaves and David follows after him and he calls after him and he says my lord my king it's interesting that despite all the things that Saul has done to David David still recognizes his authority over him now he's not sticking around for Saul to put a, a spear in him 
but he still recognizes that Saul has authority over him. My Lord, my King. And David falls on his face and he says this, why do you listen, verse nine, to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Why are you listening to those voices? Now, uh, the, the truth is, is that nobody was actually speaking into Saul's life that way. Um, the people that did speak into Saul's life from, from what we've seen so far is Jonathan, uh, his own son, telling him that David is innocent and to leave him alone. Ahimelech, uh, a priest, also uh, speaks up for, for David. But there's nobody speaking into Saul's life saying, hey, you should go and kill David. It's Saul's own heart that desires this. But, but, but he's gonna draw a contrast out here um, he says this in verse 11. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. Look, people are whispering in my ear to kill you, but I'm not going to do it. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. He, he, he shows him the contrast. There are people whispering in my ear to kill you, and I'm saying no. Nobody's whispering in your ear. You're coming after me out of your own will. You desire to murder me, though I don't want to lift my hand against you. You see the difference between you and me. And then David says something profound, and if you underline in your Bible, underline these verses, 12 and 15. David says this to Saul. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What is he saying? May the Lord judge. There are three truths to take away from this message this morning. Three principles of faith to be believed from 1 Samuel 24 through 26. And here's the first one. I don't have to take matters into my own hands because the Lord will judge sinners. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Here, here is David, and he is confronted with the opportunity of a lifetime to take a shortcut to the throne. All he has to do is kill Saul, and it's over. He gets a fast track to the throne himself, and he gets to be king. But he doesn't take the shortcut. He doesn't take vengeance. He doesn't take revenge on Saul. What does he do instead? He says, the Lord's gonna handle this. He trusts the Lord to be judge. See, you and I don't have to take matters into our own hands. We think that we do. We are surrounded by injustice everywhere. Everywhere is injustice around us. And we believe this lie that we need to spring into action and take justice into our own hands. And what we're really trying to do is create our own little kingdom because the truth of the matter is we're really bad judges between what is right and what is wrong. And the good news that David proclaims for us is you don't have to take matters into your own hands. You can trust that there is a righteous judge and he will judge sin and sinners. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. I want you to think about it this way. When you examine your own life, what are your hands doing in terms of judgment? But when you see injustice, what are your hands going to work to do 
in response to that? Are, are you going to the internet? Are you going to Facebook? Are your hands over the keyboard typing out your, your scathing message to the world to address the injustice that you see? What are your hands doing in response to injustice? Let me ask you this. What is your voice doing? Hopefully you find yourself in community with other people. And hopefully you are exposed to other people and what they're going through. And hopefully that you encounter times when, when people that you love are experiencing injustice and, and they are wanting to reach out their hands and take control. What, are, what is your voice saying to them? Are, are you like the voice of, of one of these men in the cave with, with David? Are you, are you urging the, this person to take matters into their own hands? Are, are you urging them to, to fight for, for and take control of, of, of judgment themselves? Or is yours the voice of faith? Is yours the one who is able to point them to the truth that God is the righteous judge and that they can trust him? Like your voice in the lives of other people, is it instilling faith or faithlessness? I don't have to take matters into my own hands because the Lord will judge sinners. Uh, Chapter 24 ends uh, with Saul um, demonstrating some uh, false contrite attitude Um, He acknowledges that David is in the right and that he is in the wrong. He acknowledges that God put him into David's hand. Uh, He also acknowledges that David will be king. And the chapter ends with with Saul asking David to swear that he won't cut off his children. He won't destroy his children after he's gone. And of course, David has already promised this to his son, Jonathan. Chapter 24 ends with Saul going home and David going back into hiding. All right, so that's, that's the, 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 the bottom layer of the sandwich. Let's look at the top layer of the sandwich. Skip over to chapter 26 with me. Chapter 24 and 26 are parallel chapters. They have very, very uh, much in common. Lots of things that are happening there. Um, it's just a repeat, okay? Um, this is what I said before. This is a mini chiasm. So whenever you see two chapters that are separated by another chapter, parallel each other, what they're doing is they're drawing attention to that middle chapter, and we'll get there. But in, the, in chapter 26, once again, Saul has forgotten that David is not out to get him. He has forgotten uh, how David treated him in the cave, how he didn't kill him, how he preserved his life. He's forgotten all of that, and once again, he's got his hand-picked 3,000 men out hunting David down. This time, though, it's a little bit different. Instead of, of Saul finding himself in David's cave, David finds himself in Saul's camp. Once again, God is at work. Uh, the chapter alludes to the fact that um, sleep, a deep sleep has fallen on the camp. And so David and his, his nephew Ab- <coughs> uh, Abishai are able to, to sneak into camp and they find the place that Saul is laying asleep. And they see his, his, his spear there. And what's interesting about this is this is the spear that Saul tried to use to pin David to the wall two times. Two different occasions and on each one of those occasions he threw the spear twice. And so listen to what uh, Abishai says to David in verse 8. He says, Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. He's sort of poking fun at Saul. He's like, I don't need two shots at this guy. Give me one chance, and I will pin him to the ground like he tried to pin you to the wall. He's pointing out the fact that, look, he did it to you. He's tried to kill you over and over and over again. This isn't murder. This is self-defense. The Lord has put him in your hand. This is the Lord's work. Take advantage of what God is doing. This is a present from God. 
Kill this guy now so we can stop running and you can be king. Once again, David is being put to the test. And God is asking him the question, will you let me make you king or will you try to be king on your own? Will you take matters into your own hands the way that so many have? Once again, David passes the test. He passes the test. Look at verses 9 and 11. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Here's what David's saying. I don't know when. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God is going to remove Saul. It is not my place. God is going to handle this. God is going to take care of this. I don't have to do this. Then, uh, if you skip down to verse 23 and 24, once again, David says something worth highlighting. Once again, he's in conversation with Saul uh, regarding uh, the, the, the disparity of actions between the two men. And here's what David says to him. He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Here's what he's saying. I don't trust you, Saul, to reward me for what I've done for you. I'm not going to look to you to respond in kind to me the way that I have treated you. I have saved your life. I have honored you. I have blessed you. I do not expect the same from you. Instead, my reward will come from God. Here's the second principle I want us to see from this passage this morning. I don't have to take matters into my own hands because the Lord will reward the righteous. It is the Lord who will judge sin, but it is the Lord who will, who will reward righteousness. See, here's the thing is, is oftentimes... Um, we do good things for the wrong reasons. We do good to people. Image bearers of God, they have value and significance, and we do good and we do righteous acts towards these people, but we do them for the wrong reasons. We do them so that they will love us, that they will honor us, that they will respect us, that they will affirm us, that they will somehow respond in kind instead of doing these things for God. You see, David is saying, it doesn't matter, Saul, what you do to me. I will treat you the right way because I look to my reward from God because it is God who sees. It is God who knows and it is God who gives the reward. Do you think about the ways that you use your hands symbolically to wrestle away affirmation and honor and love from other people instead of looking God to fulfill those needs in your heart? What are the ways that you use your hands to, 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 to maybe manipulate and control people so that you get the attaboys and the pats on the back? How do you use your voice? In the context of community that you're involved with and the people that you know and the people that you love, when, when they are, 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 are seeking affirmation, when, when somebody in your house church is saying, I do this for my kids and they don't say thank you and I do this for my spouse and they don't return the favor and I do this for my boss and I do this and I do this and nobody seems to notice and notice, nobody seems to care. What is your voice saying to those people? Is your voice 
one of, of faithlessness, you're darn right, that's messed up. You should say something. You need to demand some respect. You need to walk into your boss's office and lay down the law. Like, you need to look your husband in the eye and tell him he's a real jerk. Like, you need to take matters into your own hands. And you need to get the respect and honor that you deserve from people. Is your voice the voice of faithlessness or is it the voice of faithfulness? And you're pointing them, you know what? I know that's, that's hard, but do you know that God sees with you? Do you know that God knows what you've done? Do you know that God approves of the way that you treat that image bearer of God in love for him? Do you know that God sees that? See, there's a way that we speak to one another and we use our voices and we can either urge people towards faithlessness or we can urge people towards faithfulness. What does your voice do? The chapter ends much like chapter 24 does. Uh, false contriteness on the part of Saul. He actually invites David to come back with him. David is not gonna do that. And uh, the two once again part company. And so I want us to look at the protein part of the sandwich. Chapter 25. Uh, chapter 25 begins uh, with us finding out that Samuel has died. Um, and uh, it's a very, very short little sentence that Samuel has died. He's buried in his house at Ramah. Um, the thing is, is we're not, we're going to see Samuel again, okay? So the editors and the, 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 the narrators of the story, they move past Samuel's death and right back into this story, and we are introduced to this new couple. Uh, look with me at uh, chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Caramel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Caramel. Now the name of this man was Naval, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. What a contrast, all right? Uh, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. What we know is that um, David uh, and his men, where they were in the wilderness of, of, of Maon, uh, you know, David was a shepherd. He looked out for other shepherds, and he looked out for sheep. And it seems that he has maybe a protection racket going on, that he is going to, uh, to, to protect the interests of this rich man, Naval. He's going to protect his flock. He's going to protect his shepherds. Um, one of his shepherds are going to say that uh, later on that, that David and his men were like a wall around them, protecting them, so that their sheep weren't stolen or animals didn't get to them. Uh, they were protected by David. Now, David thinks that in exchange for this protection, uh, Naval should provide somewhat for him. He should, he should provide somewhat. And so... Um, he finds out that Naval is, is going to have this feast. Uh, when they sheared the sheep, there was a lot of work involved, but when the work was done, they partied a little bit. And so there was going to be a lot of food and a lot of uh, provisions going to that, uh, to that uh, celebration. And so he sends men to that celebration to ask for food. Now, what's interesting is three times in chapter 25, David refers to himself as a savior. It's a savior. It's interesting language. And you've got to look between the lines. What does he think he's saving? Who does he think he's saving? And, and, and basically what the, the conclusion is is that he thinks he's saving his men. His men are following him. It's likely that they're very, very hungry. He needs to provide for them, and here's a way of doing that. And so he's going to save his men by asking for provision from Naval. Well, Naval turns him down flat. And in fact, this is what Naval says uh, in verse 11. He says, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Do you notice the possessiveness of Naval? He thinks everything's his. 
It belongs to him. And this is his little kingdom, and he's going to control. Like, you see his hands all over all of this? He's not going to let it go to David. And so David's men report back to him, and David's response is what? I will not raise my hand against Nabal. Is that what he says? No. He says, strap on your swords. Strap on your swords. David intends to go to Naval and kill him and every human being in his household. Now I want you to notice something. That in the first chapters we looked at, 24 and 26, David is put to the test. And the test is, God is saying, will you allow me to make you king or will you take this, this kingdom by force? And David passed this test with flying colors. But in chapter 25, he is very close to failing the test. He is on the verge of becoming Saul. And just as Saul would lead 3,000 men out to murder David, so David would, would lead 400 men out to murder Naval. He is this close to becoming the very thing he doesn't want to be. This close to not passing the test. But God, in his grace, intervenes. So what happens is, while David is, is on the way, uh, one of the servants of Naval goes to Abigail, Naval's wife, a woman of discerning, uh, beauty and, and he explains the situation, explains what Naval has done, explains the predicament they are under. And here's what he says to her in verse 17. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. One cannot speak. We're talking about voices, right? Speaking into people's lives. And Saul doesn't have anybody speaking into his life, at least not nobody that he's listening to. And here's Naval, and he is the definition of a fool because he will not listen to people speak into his life. I mean, David, he has his men speaking into his life. They're saying all the wrong stuff, but they're speaking into his life. He listens, he rejects it. But here's Naval, and Naval won't listen to anybody, not even his discerning wife. And so, Abigail takes matters into her own hands and she loads up a bunch of donkeys with food and she goes out to intercept David. And she puts herself in front of the wrath of David and her household. She intervenes in order to save. I want you to see what it reads here, verse 23 and 24. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Do you see what this, she says? On me alone. She is interceding on behalf of her household in order to save them from the wrath of David. And she says, on me alone, place the guilt. I'll take the blame. She's completely innocent. She's done nothing wrong, but she says, I take the blame. In verse 28, it says, please forgive the trespasses of your servant. Do you see, it, it, it's here that, that David is on the verge of failing the test. He is on the verge of becoming Saul. And the question before David is, is will he hear the truth? Will he hear Abigail? And will that make a difference? Saul doesn't listen. Naval doesn't listen. Will David go down that road? Verse 32 and 34, it says, And David said to Abigail, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He listened. He listened. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Naval so much as one male. What is he saying here? He's saying, you saved me. I was coming believing that I was going to bring about salvation for my men. I was coming to work out salvation for myself. I want to go back uh, a couple of verses that I skipped over, unfortunately. Um, the, the thing that we need to, to point out here is, is that not only did Abigail intercede on behalf of her family, she also interceded on behalf of David. Uh, she says this to him, uh, that it's her desire that evil shall not be found in him so long as he lives. Abigail desires that he is a righteous man and that he maintains that righteousness. See, this is a picture of love. When somebody wants the, the best for you, and here, she wants him to be righteous before the Lord. She's wanting the best for him. This is a form of love that Abigail has for David. And then uh, she says this, um, uh, verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. For my Lord working salvation himself. Or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt with me, well with my Lord, then remember your story. Here's what, he's, what she's saying. She's saying, God's going to put you in the seat of the king. God's going to put you on the throne. And when that happens, I don't want you to have regrets. When that happens, I don't want you to look back with a guilty conscience at all the blood on your hands because you murdered innocent people. See, Abigail, she doesn't just care about protecting her household. She is actually caring about David and interceding on his behalf. David hears her, and he alters course, and he passes the test, and he doesn't become like Saul. The last principle of faith to believe from 1 Samuel 24 and through 26 is this. I don't have to take matters into my own hands because the Lord will save. David didn't believe the Lord will save. David believed that it was his job to be the savior of his men. And out of that belief, he picks up a sword and is ready to murder people to save. He was this close to becoming Saul, this close to failing the test, but God in his grace sends him someone to speak to him and to pull him out of that. Abigail is a, is a picture of salvation. I want to... Um, uh, briefly tell you what happens the rest of the chapter. Uh, it's pretty long, but uh, Naval decides that he's going to throw a party for himself. Um, he's going to celebrate his, his, his own uh, fabulousness with a party. Um, he, he thinks very highly of himself and what he has accomplished and what he owns, and, uh, and so he throws this party, and he gets very inebriated, and um, Abigail comes in to, to, to tell him about what's happened, but because of his state, she decides she's going to wait until he's sober the next day. So the next day, she tells him, because of what you said to David, you almost lost your life. Because you rejected David, because you refused to provide for him, you almost destroyed our whole house. Everybody almost was murdered. But I intervened, and I stopped him. And when, uh, when uh, Naval finds out what has happened, it says that his heart died within him. Uh, this is like a divine stroke. And 10 days later, he's dead. 
And there from there, uh, David does one of the wisest things he ever does. He sends and he invites Abigail to be his wife. Now, uh, there's also some foreshadowing. At the same time that he, he, he marries Abigail, he marries another woman named Ahinoam. Um, and this is a, is a picture of how David will eventually fail the test because he wasn't satisfied by the wisdom and discernment of one beautiful woman. Eventually, he will fail the test, and all of us do. But you see, Abigail points to something better, and I want to show you how she points to something better. In verse 41, when she comes to David, she says this, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Now, there is foot washing in the Old Testament, but generally the context is uh, a sign of hospitality. You come in, uh, here's a place you can wash your feet. There's, there's not a context in the Old Testament where someone of position and power, she has five handmaidens. She's from a very wealthy family. All that Navelle has is now hers, which is now David's. She's a very rich woman, powerful in, in every respect of the word for, for, for being a woman in that particular culture. But she, she's high, and she's, she's exalted. And she, and she comes to David, and what does she say? She, she says, I'm going to wash your feet. The, not, not just your feet, the, the feet of your servants. And like there's no other picture in the Old Testament of someone um, taking on that form of humility and getting that low in order to serve someone else. Not in the Old Testament, but there is in the New. The night before Jesus was killed, he took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and he got down on his knees and he washed the stinking feet of his disciples. And he actually did what Abigail said she would do. And I want you to draw, to draw your attention to the hands of Jesus. The hands of Jesus that would, would, would wipe stinking feet and clean them. The hands of Jesus that would heal people. The hands of, of Jesus that would, would touch the unclean. The hands of Jesus that would, would multiply food and feed thousands. The hands of Jesus that would, that would break bread with, with the dregs of society. The hands of Jesus that would do all of this. And yet the hands of Jesus that would be nailed to a cross and lifted up. You see, Abigail comes to David and she lays down on, on the ground prostrate and she says, I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. She leaves Naval. She goes and she intercepts David and all of his wrath and fury for what's happened. And she lays face down on the ground. She says, I will take the blame for what's happened. And this is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who comes and he takes on flesh. And he comes and he lives this righteous and perfect life. He was completely innocent. And yet he goes to the cross and he's stretched out and he says, I take the blame. I stand between you and the wrath of God and I absorb the wrath of God in my flesh in your place. I take the blame. Abigail points us to Jesus and points to our salvation and our redemption and our reconciliation with God. A God who we are constantly trying to wrestle control away from. We're constantly telling he's not a good enough judge and he doesn't reward us enough. And he's not going to really save us, and we have to save ourselves. The God who has done everything for us. And we are constantly trying to wrestle the kingdom away from him and out of his hands. You look at those, those statements. I don't have to be in control because God is just. I don't have to to be in control because I know that he will reward me. I don't have to be in control because I know that he will save me. These are statements of faith. You see, if God is who he says he is, and if he's done what he said he has done, then you are not Saul. You're free. 
You're not Naval. You are something different. You are somebody who can walk through this world with open hands against nobody, trusting in God for everything. You see, because of the life and death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to the throne and he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And if you believe in him, you are in his hand. You are in the hand that controls everything. You are in the hand with complete power and goodness. You're in his hand. You can let go now. Isn't that good news to you? I want to transition us into a time of response. We can respond in, in a couple of ways this morning. The first is through song, standing, singing, proclaiming through music the truth of what we believe. But the second response is communion this morning. And it's going to be a little bit different than, than the way we've done it in this building before. Uh, in a moment, um, Ryan and Anthony are going to come and they're going to begin to play. And, and when they do, I want you to take your time. I want you to hear that. Take your time. There's going to be three songs played. There's plenty of time. Take your time. And when you're ready, get up from where you are. Come down the center aisle. Give people space. Don't crowd them. Come down the center aisle. Uh, grab the communion elements. And then go back the side aisles back to your seat. And once there, again, you have plenty of time. Wrestle with these three questions with God. How have I tried to take control out of your hands in terms of justice, my reward, and my salvation? Do business with God and ask, God, how have I taken matters into my own hands and tried to be judge and jury over the people around me rather than trusting you to be the judge? God, how have I tried to take matters into my own hands and seeking rewards and affirmation from people when I need to look to you for rewards and affirmation? God, how have I tried to take matters into my own hands and try to save my life and save everything and, and protect me and, and protect my world and protect my people and protect... How have I taken matters into my own hands? And thirdly, ask this. How have I used my voice to either proclaim a gospel that's completely false and getting people to trust in themselves and take matters into their own hands? Or am I proclaiming a gospel that's true? Am I proclaiming a gospel that's faithful? And when you've done that business, repent, ask for forgiveness, and then preach the truth to your heart. I don't have to be in control. Proclaim the truth to yourself. I don't have to be in control. And find freedom in that. And then when you're ready, sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, but we look elsewhere. You are great, but we wrestle you for control. You are glorious, but we fear men. You are gracious, yet we try to prove ourselves. We, like Saul, have paranoid delusions about you. And the truth is, is you have always been faithful. And you have always been good. And you have time and time again demonstrated your righteousness and faithfulness. And we have no cause to believe anything different about you. And yet we do. Father, forgive us. 
Father, by the power of your spirit, remind us of the truth. You are God. We are not. And you are in control and you deserve to be. And control for us is a delusion. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for coming and laying down your life and for taking the blame for me. Thank you. I pray in the moments that are to follow, Jesus, that you are brought in to the center of our hearts and our minds as we contemplate what you've done for us. And by the power of your spirit, begin to change us. Help us to become faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.